0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson.
0: And I'm Holly Fry.
1: We are picking up where we left off last time in the story of Sojourner Truth. Last time, we talked about her enslavement in the Hudson River Valley in New York and how a religious vision after she was free led to her moving to New York City. Today, we are picking up with another vision, which marked another huge shift in how she lived her life. And since this is a two-parter, I really recommend listening to part one first.
0: We're going to directly refer to it a few times, yeah, including right out of the gate. So after the collapse of Father Matthias's religious community, the Kingdom, Isabella spent several difficult years in New York City. She felt as though everything she had tried to do in New York had failed, and she felt like she herself had failed as well. She wasn't generous enough, she wasn't kind enough. She felt that she was too selfish and greedy. An example she gave in her narrative was that a man where she was living would give her a dollar to hire a poor person to clear the walk, but she would clear the walk herself and keep that money, reasoning that she needed it because she was poor too. And in 1843, she began to see herself as, quote, unfeeling, selfish, and wicked. On June
1: 1st, 1843, she had another religious experience in which she felt called to completely change her life to leave the city of New York and to go east and preach. As had happened, and the experience that had led her to go to New York earlier, this uh, happened around Pentecost. She put a few things into a pillowcase. She told the woman who ran the house where she was staying that she was leaving, and she said that she had a new name. That new name was Sojourner. When asked why she was going east, she said, quote, the spirit calls me there and I must go. East really meant going across Long Island. And along the way, she asked God
0: what her last name should be. And the name that came to her was Truth. Sojourner Truth's time as an itinerant preacher happened during the religious revival known as the Second Great Awakening. But more specifically, a man named William Miller had been developing a huge following. His followers came to be known as Millerites. In 1822, based on a series of complicated equations, he announced that he had determined the day that Christ would return to earth, at which point the righteous would ascend to heaven.
1: When he had made this announcement back in 1822, he hadn't named a specific date when this was going to happen, but some of his followers had put forth the day of March 21st, 1843. That date had already come and gone when Sojourner took her new name and started traveling east. But Miller had said from the start that Christ could come as late as 1844. So as Sojourner Truth was traveling along Long Island, the Millerites were eagerly awaiting this event, which was now expected to happen on March 21st, 1844.
0: Sojourner herself was not a Millerite, and she didn't think Miller's predictions were accurate at all. But the popularity of the movement really paved the way for her preaching. Tent meetings were a big part of it, and there were other women preachers at these meetings, including other Black women. So there were places that she could preach, with a congregation there to hear her. People were also really ready for her style of preaching, which was really
1: dynamic and energetic and very well-versed in Scripture. It was infused with the perfectionist ideas that people could free themselves from sin through willpower and religion— It was full of her own lived experiences and her own understanding of God and of the Bible. She had a very informal, kind of folksy way of speaking, and she had a very striking appearance thanks to her height of nearly six feet and her affinity for smoking a pipe. Her reputation started to really spread, and she started arriving at tent meetings to find out that people were really hoping she would be one of the people who was coming there to preach.
0: A series of predicted dates for the Millerites' return of Christ came and went. The last of those dates was October 22nd, 1844, which became known as the Great Disappointment. The Millerite movement fell apart after that, but many of its members continued on with their religious work. These included Ellen Harmon, who later married James White and co-founded the Seventh-day Adventist Church. So after the Great Disappointment, Truth kept in touch with a lot of the same people, moving through the Seventh-day Adventist circles the way that she had moved through the Millerites. By that point,
1: Sojourner Truth had moved to Massachusetts and had joined the Northampton Association of Education and Industry, which was also called the Community. This was a utopian community that was centered on a silk mill, and that silk mill was communally operated by the community
0: members as free labor. This was a somewhat unexpected place for Truth to end up. Even though Massachusetts has a strong connection to the movement for the abolition of slavery— Northampton was really conservative. It was a popular vacation spot for slave owners from the South, and racism was prolific in the area surrounding the community.
1: It was also kind of unexpected considering what had happened the last time Sojourner Truth joined a communal living situation, which we talked about in part one. But the Northampton Association of Education and Industry was so much different from Father Matthias's kingdom. The community was home to reformers and radicals. It had been founded by 10 families who believed in the abolition of slavery and the granting of full citizenship rights to free Black people. Although there were some religious elements to all this, in general, the community was really about trying to abolish slavery and inequality, not about proselytizing.
0: The community also had more liberal views on gender. Everyone in the community was allowed to choose what work to do, with the exception of preparing mulberry leaves, which was necessary for everyone to help with. And this meant that women were not just put into domestic roles by default.
1: We've talked about several utopian communities on previous episodes, and one of the difficulties that we have talked about in several of them is members of the community not really pulling their own weight in terms of keeping the whole thing running. People a lot of times join utopian communities with kind of a an idealistic idea of, of how that's going to go, and it really turns out to involve a lot of incredibly hard work that people aren't necessarily ready for, At the community, Sojourner Truth worked incredibly hard, and she was also one of the people who kept everyone else in line when it came to doing their share of the work. She held everyone else to extremely high standards, but she held herself to those same standards
0: as well. Two of Sojourner's daughters, Elizabeth and Sophia, joined her at the community in 1844, and this reunion was both joyous and challenging. Sojourner hadn't always been able to be close to her daughters, both because of their enslavement and because of her religious work in New York City. So it was actually pretty difficult for the three of them to try to build a close relationship now that the girls were in their late teens.
1: Plus, Sophia was pregnant by a man that she had been living with, and that carried a lot of emotional baggage for Sojourner. There were questions surrounding some of Sojourner's own pregnancies, and these were questions that she mostly avoided now that she was living as a preacher. But aside from that, she regretted not being able to be more present in her daughter's lives, to possibly bring them to a different outcome than the one that she
0: had had herself. While living at the community, Sojourner began meeting and developing connections with prominent figures in the movements for abolition and women's rights. This included William Lloyd Garrison's brother-in-law, George Benson, and in 1844, Garrison himself. Connecticut abolitionists also used the community as their headquarters. The American Anti-Slavery Society had split in 1840 because some of its members found Garrison's beliefs to be too radical. And once that happened, Garrison's supporters had no formal organization in Connecticut, so they organized from the community instead. Just to note, among Garrison's more radical beliefs that caused
1: this split were that the United States government should be totally rebuilt to be anti-slavery from its foundation rather than trying to add anti-slavery reforms to the
0: existing government. Sojourner also met Frederick Douglass at the community. And in his What I Found at the Northampton Association, he described her this way. I met here for the first time that strange compound of wit and wisdom, of wild enthusiasm and flint-like common sense, who seemed to feel it her duty to trip me up in my speeches and to ridicule my efforts to speak and act like a person of cultivation and refinement. I allude to Sojourner Truth. She was a genuine specimen of the uncultured Negro. She cared little for elegance or refinement of manners." She seemed to please herself and others best when she put her ideas in the oddest forms. She was much respected at Florence, for she was honest, industrious, and amiable. Her quaint speeches easily gave her an audience, and she was one of the most useful members of the community in its day of small things. There's just so much going on in that description. (laughs) Well, and it's also, I, I have always enjoyed his writing because even though this is prose, the cadence of it feels very poetic to me. Mm -hmm. Like, I just like the way he assembles numbers of uh, syllables together in one sentence. It's very pleasing.
1: Yeah. Uh, Florence was sort of the place in Northampton where all of this was going on. And uh, it's clear from this that um, Frederick Douglass in some ways really respected her and in some ways didn't really. (laughs) And also that
0: uh, she did not necessarily have a lot of patience for Frederick Douglass sometimes. <laughs> I imagine he really respected her but found her to be a pain in the neck. <laughs> like I, that's the vibe I get from this.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was also in Northampton that Sojourner Truth and Olive Gilbert collaborated on Sojourner's autobiography, and we will talk about that after a quick sponsor break. <music> While living in Northampton, Sojourner Truth worked with Olive Gilbert to write her autobiography. And the result was The Narrative of Sojourner Truth, a bondswoman of olden time, first published in 1850. It was published along with statements from white abolitionists attesting to Sojourner's character and to the validity of the book. By that point, the community itself had dissolved, but several of its members had remained in Northampton.
0: Sojourner was introduced to Olive through a mutual friend, probably Sarah Benson. Both Sarah and Sojourner were taking the water cure at David Ruggles' hydrotherapy center in Florence, Massachusetts, which is part of Northampton. Ruggles was one of the abolitionists who helped Frederick Douglass escape from slavery, as well as being the first black bookseller in the United States. He died in 1849, which was a huge blow to the abolitionist movement and to Sojourner Truth personally.
1: Olive and Sojourner worked together on the autobiography because Sojourner hadn't learned to read or write. A very few copies of her signature that exist today really resemble a child's earliest attempts to write their names. And there's been a lot of speculation about why this is. It was not common at all for enslaved people in New York to be taught to read or write. But by the late 1840s, when she was working on this book, Sojourner had been free for about 15 years. And she'd also been surrounded by educated, affluent people, especially during her time at the Northampton community. It's really likely that several of these people would have encouraged her to learn to read or offered to teach her themselves.
0: So, there are a lot of hypotheses for why Sojourner didn't learn to read after becoming free. And one is that she may have had a learning disability, a visual perception disorder, or a psychological block brought on by being sold to an English-speaking home when she spoke only Dutch and then beaten for not understanding a language that she did not know. It is also possible that she didn't trust the act of writing or that she feared that if she learned to write, it would weigh down her mind or crowd out the voice of the Holy Spirit in her head. Also, this is really a question that is a lot
1: more common today than it was when she was living, because it was really common for people not to know how to read or write, especially people of color, regardless of whether they'd ever been enslaved, and especially women, regardless of their race.
0: Whatever the reason, when Sojourner started collaborating with Olive Gilbert, she did not know how to read or write. And the book they created together is written in the third person. So it reads more like Olive's observation of what Sojourner told her about her life rather than Sojourner's own words directly from her own mouth. Even so, we don't have really a lot of reason to doubt the book that they ultimately made together. And Sojourner stood by it for the rest of her life and directed people to it when they had questions. It is also the only narrative we have of an enslaved person in Dutch New York.
1: Yeah, it's it's really likely that that Olive influenced things about it. But for Sojourner's whole life, people would ask her questions and she'd be like, it's all in the book. So <laughs> she she clearly supported it. One of the things that Sojourner Truth did with this autobiography was to sell copies to fund her own needs, her own living, and her own lecture tours, and she toured extensively. By the 1840s, she was active on the lecture circuit, and her height and her commanding voice and her keen intelligence made her stand out. She was the first woman to really come to prominence as a speaker in the abolitionist movement in the United States.
0: In the 1850s, Sojourner embarked on a 22-state lecture tour. Her speeches ranged through abolition, women's rights, religion, and the political issues of the day. This included stridently denouncing the Compromise of 1850, which was meant to appease the slave states after California applied to join the Union as a free state in 1849, without a corresponding slave state to preserve what was considered the balance.
1: Among other things, the Compromise of 1850 amended the Fugitive Slave Act. This 1850 revision to the act required the United States government to help slave owners recapture escaped slaves, including the right to pursue escaped slaves into free territory. There were also penalties for sheltering or helping escaped slaves, and every person of African descent was really at risk for being captured and sold into slavery. This bill was nicknamed the Bloodhound Bill by its opponents because it it was basically like, we're going to hire a bunch of bloodhounds to track down all the escaped people.
0: On October 23rd and 24th, 1850, Sojourner attended the first National Women's Rights Convention in Worcester, Massachusetts. And there, she gave one of many speeches that connected the cause of abolition to the cause of women's rights. And afterward, the convention resolved to include quote, the trampled women of the plantation in their advocacy. We have talked about which of them followed through on that in other episodes of the show. It's definitely
1: not something where they had this meeting in Worcester and then immediately all got on board with the cause of abolition and Black women's rights. Yeah. In 1851, Sojourner attended another women's rights conference in Akron, Ohio. And it was at this one that she gave her speech that's best known today as Ain't I a Woman. Sometimes it's also presented as Aren't I a Woman. And we're going to be talking about the speech a lot more a little bit later in the show, but this is where it happened in the timeline.
0: Over the 1850s, Sojourner became increasingly well-known for her speaking, which was often at least partly extemporaneous. At least once, she amused audiences by saying something along the lines of, I have come here out of curiosity to hear what I have to say. (laughs) I love that.
1: (laughs) She was also very direct, and she did not back down from challenging other people. In 1852 she was listening to Frederick Douglass give a speech in Salem, Ohio. In the wake of the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, he had become more militant, saying, "quote, the way to make the fugitive slave law a dead letter was to make a few slave hunters dead men." As he started calling for enslaved people to rise up by force, Sojourner, who was really not in favor of violence and all this, called out, "Frederick, is God gone?" Sometimes this is described as having happened much later at Faneuil Hall in Boston, with the question being, Frederick, is God dead? Either way, she was basically asking Frederick Douglass in public whether he
0: had lost his faith. After the Dred Scott decision in 1857, she began speaking about the Constitution as infested with weevils, drawing comparison to a wheat weevil infestation that had been devastating crops. That same year, she sold her property in Northampton and bought a small home in Battle Creek, Michigan, where she became active in the area's spiritualist community. She was into a lot of trendy practices of the day, including spiritualism, phrenology, and hydrotherapy. Yeah, we didn't really mention
1: it earlier, but her book sales and other work was, like, it it funded things like buying a house of her own, that kind of stuff. Sojourner also became really known for bucking gender norms in a very visible way beyond just her habit of smoking a pipe in public, and she also got a reputation for being pretty defiant. The Boston Liberator wrote about one incident that happened in Indiana in 1858 in which the men in the audience questioned whether she was really a man in disguise. Here is what they said, quote, Sojourner told them that her breasts had suckled many a white babe to the exclusion of her own offspring, that some of those white babies had grown to man's estate, that although they had sucked her colored breasts, they were, in her estimation, far more manly than they, her prosecutors, appeared to be. And she quietly asked them, as she disrobed her bosom, if they, too, wished to suck, In vindication of her truthfulness, she told them she would show her breast to the whole congregation, that it was not to her shame that she uncovered her breast before them, but to their shame.
0: The U.S. Civil War began in 1861, and by that point, Sojourner was struggling with her health. She had spent about 20 years traveling and speaking out against slavery and in favor of women's rights, and the last decade or so had been through increasingly dangerous territory as conditions became more violent in advance of the war. Although her health started to improve in 1863, she just didn't have the kind of stamina that had been necessary for her long-ranging speaking tours in the 1850s.
1: During the Civil War, Sojourner helped recruit troops to fight for the Union and encouraged the Union to add the abolition of slavery to its objectives for the war. In 1864, she met President Abraham Lincoln. And after the war, she moved to Washington, D.C., and then to the Freedmen's Village in Arlington to try to work with the freed people and help them adjust to life outside of slavery. This included teaching the sorts of homemaking skills that people who had been working in the fields their whole lives hadn't really had an opportunity to learn. She also helped care for hospital patients in the years after the war.
0: In 1865, she was supposed to attend a reception in advance of Lincoln's second inauguration, but she was turned away on account of her race. Her escort, Captain George Carse, answered, If she is not good enough to enter, then I am not. Lincoln later apologized for that having happened. After the Civil War,
1: Sojourner continued fighting for civil rights, both through her speaking and through her actions. She advocated adding women's rights to the Reconstruction Amendments. As cities started formally segregating by race, she started intentionally boarding segregated streetcars, sometimes staying on board longer than she needed to just to press the issue. At one point, this led to a conductor dislocating her shoulder when he forcibly removed her from the car. She got him fired, and he was arrested on charges of assault and battery. She also filed suit against the streetcar conductor who tried to keep her from boarding.
0: Life became increasingly difficult in Washington, D.C., as the influx of freed people sparked a backlash among white residents. Sojourner had been trying to get freed people jobs in Washington, but she gradually began relocating people to other cities instead, particularly Rochester, New York. Eventually, she moved back to Battle Creek, Michigan. She renewed her focus on women's rights, especially black women's rights, along with helping the poor. In the late 1870s, she began working on a plan to resettle freed people to homesteads in the West, although that never came to fruition.
1: She gave her last public lecture in 1881. By that point, she had met three U.S. presidents and had spent decades publicly preaching and publicly advocating for abolition, women's rights, and civil rights. Even so, she'd had to make a habit of carrying a scrapbook full of newspaper clippings about herself and signatures of prominent white abolitionists and women's rights activists, because otherwise, people who hadn't already heard of her didn't really take her seriously because of her race.
0: In the last few years of her life, Sojourner Truth was cared for by her daughters and by her doctor, John Harvey Kellogg. She died on November 26, 1883, at the age of about 86, possibly due to complications of diabetes or gangrene. Her last known words were, Be a follower of Jesus.
1: But the words that people are a lot more familiar with from Sojourner Truth are Ain't I a Woman? And we will finally get to that part after one last sponsor break. So, like we said earlier in the show, Sojourner Truth gave the speech that is known today as Ain't I a Woman in Akron, Ohio in 1851. And the most well-known version of this speech was published by Francis Gage in the New York Independent on April 23rd, 1863.
0: Earlier that month, Harriet Beecher Stowe had published a story in The Atlantic called Sojourner Truth, The Libyan Sybil. And this was one year after she published her anti-slavery novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin. In The Atlantic article, Stowe recounts meeting truth quote, many years ago. And she relates being introduced after which Truth says, well, honey, de Lord bless you. I just thought I'd like to come and have a look at you. You's here to me, I reckon.
1: Stowe's account goes on to portray Sojourner Truth as a very stereotypically Southern slave with her speech rendered in a really thick dialect. So thick, I don't know about you, Holly. I'm not comfortable reading it out loud. Just
0: reading the part that I just read felt weird and gross. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And also, a little bit funny to me because, as we have mentioned, she was not from the South. Right. So it makes it super weird and gross.
1: Yeah. Well, and so uh, we said in the top of part one that there are a lot of videos on YouTube of Black women performing this speech, and I am not criticizing any of that at all. No, I'm saying that, like, the speech is written in such a thickly dialected way that for a white woman to try to recreate it feels bad. Yes. In addition to this really, really thickly uh, presented language, Stowe also makes a whole bunch of factual errors in this article, including saying that Sojourner Truth had been brought to the United States from Africa, which... She was not. She was born in Dutch New York. And also saying that Sojourner Truth was, as of 1863, when the article came out, dead. Which she was not. Sojourner Truth knew about this piece. She was not fond of it. She pointed out how many elements of it were wrong, including saying that she did not call people honey, and that she did not refer to people of her race using the N-word, which is from a part of the article we did not read.
0: The Atlantic was widely circulated in 1863, so this article is what introduced Sojourner Truth to a lot of the United States, especially people who were not already moving in abolitionist or women's rights circles. And it almost certainly inspired Frances Gage to put together her recollections of Sojourner's Akron, Ohio speech from 12 years before.
1: So this title that we know the speech by today, which is Ain't I a Woman, comes from a line that's repeated several times in Gage's version, including in this passage, that man over dar say that woman needs to be helped into carriages and lifted over ditches and to have the best place everywhere. Nobody ever helps me into carriages or over mud puddles or gives me any best place. And aren't I a woman? Look at me, look at my arm. I have plowed and planted and gathered into barns, and no man could head me, and aren't I a woman? I could work as much and eat as much as a man when I could get it. I bared a lash as well, and aren't I a woman? I have borne thirteen children and seen them most all sold off into slavery, and when I cried out with a mother's grief, none but Jesus heard, and aren't I a woman?
0: This version of this speech was reprinted in the 1875 edition of Sojourner Truth's autobiography and in the book History of Woman's Suffrage by Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Susan B. Anthony, and Matilda Joslyn Gage in 1881. And all of that has led to it being so widespread today.
1: But the oldest known written account of the Akron, Ohio speech is not from 1863, which was 12 years after it happened. It's from the June 21st, 1851 issue of the Anti-Slavery Bugle, and it includes some really similar sentiments to that more well-known version. Here is a quote. Quote, I am a woman's rights. I have as much muscle as any man and can do as much work as any man. I have plowed and reaped and husked and chopped and mowed And can any man do more than that? I have heard much about the sexes being equal. I can carry as much as any man and can eat as much too. If I can get it, I am as
0: strong as any man that is now. This version also includes a line that appears almost word for word in the other version as well. As for intellect, all I can say is, if women have a pint and a man a quart, why can't she have her little pint full? Both versions also include the point that Jesus was born from God and a woman and that man had no part in it. What the 1851 version doesn't include is aren't I a woman or ain't I a woman, which is repeated in Francis Gage's version four times.
1: So there are questions about whether Sojourner Truth really said that part at all. It's also very similar to Am I Not a Woman and a Sister, which was taken from an engraving in abolitionist George Burns' 1837 book, Slavery Illustrated, and its effects upon women. By the 1850s, Am I Not a Woman and a Sister was a slogan in the movement for abolition.
0: And all this has led to a lot of debate about exactly what Sojourner Truth said in 1851 and just how much Harriet Beecher Stowe and Frances Gage crafted their depictions of her around their own preconceptions rather than around anything she actually said or did. It is clear that both Stowe and Gage portrayed truth in a way that made her seem like an uneducated and even unintelligent Southern enslaved person when she was really a native Dutch speaker who spoke at least two languages and also had a very keen intellect. And they both did so to capitalize on prior work. Harriet Beecher Stowe was building on the popularity of Uncle Tom's Cabin, and Francis Gage was building on the popularity of Stowe's essay in The Atlantic.
1: Uncle Tom's Cabin had also influenced Sojourner Truth's own speeches because after that book came out, people, especially when they were hearing abolitionist lectures, were a lot more interested in hearing her stories from her enslavement rather than hearing about anything else she might want to talk about.
0: But it's not accurate to suggest that the most famous version of Ain't I a Woman was made up out of whole cloth, as some viral posts on the internet might suggest. In multiple other speeches, Sojourner Truth made the point that women were expected to receive gracious and genteel treatment, but that she was not, even though she was a woman. And there's definite overlap between the 1851 and 1863 versions of the speeches. But as we've said, the 1863 version is written in this heavy Southern-inspired dialect, even though she did not speak like that at all. Although she did, as we also mentioned, have a casual folksiness to her speech.
1: Yeah, a lot of the other people who noted her speeches and published them somewhere in, like, abolitionist newspapers and that kind of thing, a lot of time have, like, some some apostrophes that drop letters off of the end of words or some non-standard uses of verb agreement or something like that. But not remotely, the, like, almost impossible-to-read versions of Francis Gage and Harriet Beecher Stowe. So it's, like... It's it's clear that there was sort of a, a rhythm and a quaintness about her speech, but it doesn't seem like it was the way those two women tried to reproduce it. Also, because Sojourner Truth didn't read or write, really everything we know about her and her speeches is filtered through other people, and almost all of the other people who have written down that things that she said were white— Ultimately, she had a lot more control over her image than she had over her words. She sat for photographs several times later in her life after photography became a more common thing for people to do. She very carefully chose her clothing and her posture and the other objects in these photos. Her appearance in them is always very tidy and very reserved. She's often wearing a shawl or holding some knitting. And these pictures suggest a lot of things. They suggest simplicity and domesticity, but also refinement and productivity and self-reliance. A lot of the photographs are printed with the caption, I sell the shadow to support the substance. And that was a slogan that she used to describe why she was selling both her picture and the story. Also, <laughs> not totally sure how to wrap up this whole conversation, but it does really, really remind me of Chief Seattle's speech that he never made, uh, which we just put out there in a Saturday classic in advance of this episode, uh, because uh, the like the one thing that a lot of people know about Chief Seattle, besides the city of Seattle, was named after him, was that he supposedly made this speech in 1854 that was like super environmental in its themes. And so they have this image of like Chief Seattle as this... Uh, like, native person who personified um, environmental awareness, but really that version that is so widely quoted in environmental context is by a guy named Ted Perry, and it was written in the 1970s. So, <laughs> like, it's... I I there I feel like there are a lot of parallels between Sojourner Truth and Chief Seattle in that way, both in how their words were used in a way that they, doesn't necessarily reflect them at all, and the fact that, like, that one use of language has become the thing that people associate with them.
0: I will just say that I love photographs of Sojourner Truth, particularly when she has her little narrow wireframe glasses on. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. she just looks like a woman. One, she looks smart. Like, there is a light in her eyes that's like, I know exactly what you're about. But two, uh-huh. <laughs> two, um, there's something very sweet looking about her at the same time. Yeah. And I think it's the glasses. I admittedly, like, I love a pair of glasses, so it automatically endears me to people. But I really, really love those photographs of her where she's sitting with her glasses and she kind of looks like, I'm not having your nonsense. <laughs> like, <laughs> I um I've been, I I
1: read a a quote about her somewhere along the way in doing the research for this and then I couldn't track down the origin of it but it was a description that was something like she had a heart of gold and a tongue of fire and I was like yeah uh, that makes sense and I also <laughs> I think that Ain't I a Woman speech has obviously meant a lot to a lot of people so the fact that it has this complicated history to me doesn't mean that it suddenly like not worthwhile to read or listen to or or some of the really amazing renditions of it that you can see on the internet like i i feel like those still have a lot of meaning even though there's all, there are all these questions about them
0: yeah i mean the sentiment of it is valuable to consider but as we discussed at length in this episode the way it's been presented has been a little bit dicey at times and and is worthy of examination yeah without necessarily robbing that idea of the questions that should be asked that are associated with it from their own own import. Yeah,
1: it does. Uh, it does sadden me that because that's the one thing that people know about her. That there's so much more about her life that is just not as widely known at all.
0: Yeah, yeah. What you got in the way of listener mail this time around?
1: I have some listener mail about Francisco Franco from Abe. Abe says, hey, Holly and Tracy, I really enjoyed hearing your podcast about the rise and regime of Francisco Franco in Spain. I learned a lot of great information about a regime that very often gets omitted from American history classes, probably because the U.S. supported the regime due to its anti-communist stance in the Cold War. I have one correction, though. At one point, you mentioned that Spain was the last fascist regime in Europe following the fall of Italy and Germany in World War II. However, this is not actually true. Portugal was also ruled by the fascist Estado Novo, new state in Portuguese, party until 1974. To be clear, I'm no means an expert on this topic, but from the little I know about the regime, it was exceptionally similar to Franco's, both in ideology and historical era. Estado Novo came to power in 1933 while Franco was engaged in the Spanish Civil War. They believed in their supremacy over their remaining colonies, most notably Angola, Mozambique, and Macau, as much as Spain acted with regards to Morocco, as you mentioned. They were also staunchly anti-communist, pro-Catholic, and socially conservative. A big difference from what you mentioned, though, was Franco's later economic success in the 1960s that makes him a controversial figure in Spain because some look fondly upon him for this, as you mentioned in the episode This did not happen in Portugal, as by the end of the regime, they were the poorest country in Western Europe. In addition, they did not have the same support from capitalist countries, particularly the United States, because of their views on decolonization, which were at odds with the rest of the historical empires of Britain, France, etc. Anyways, I love the episode, as it touched on a really overlooked but very important part of European history. Thanks for everything you do, Abe. Uh, Thank you very much, Abe, for writing this letter. So I wanted to note that what we had said was that other nations considered Francisco Franco to be the last surviving fascist dictator at the time. Like, that was how other world powers, uh, especially, like, other world powers that had been allies in the war, like, that was how they were looking back on him. Um, And they didn't seem to have that same perception of Uh, of Portugal, largely because while Spain was technically neutral in World War II, it still clearly leaned toward the Axis powers. And while Portugal was also neutral during World War II, Portugal leaned toward more the Allied powers um, and then became more formally aligned with Britain later on in the war. And so the other world powers didn't have the same... Uh, regard for Portugal that they had for Spain and Francisco Franco after the war in terms of other leaders referring to him as the last surviving fascist dictator. So, to clarify all that, thank you again, Abe, for writing this email to us. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at History podcast at howstuffworks.com and then we're all over social media at Missed in History and that is where you'll find our Facebook, Pinterest, Instagram, and Twitter, You can also subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever else you find podcasts.
0: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.